This episode of No Place Like Home is brought to you by the Sierra Club, the nation's largest grassroots environmental organization, encouraging you to explore, enjoy, and protect the planet. You can join the Sierra Club's 2 million supporters working to power the U.S. with 100% clean energy at sierraclub.org. And thanks also to the amazing band River Wireless for our theme music. And now on to the first episode of No Place Like Home. Hello, I'm Marianne Hitt. And I'm Anna Jane Joyner. And we want to welcome you to our new podcast, No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. Today, we're going to talk about the inspiration behind creating this podcast. And we have an interview with filmmaker Jesse Sweet about telling better climate stories, being a parent in the age of climate change, and Arnold Schwarzenegger's unforgettable advice about how we went on climate, which you don't want to miss. But first, Marianne and I have some catching up to do. Welcome to our podcast. This is so exciting. We've been dreaming about this for so long, and here it is. I know. I love when you have these crazy ideas and they actually come to life, and I can't wait to see where this one goes. And it's going to be a podcast about climate change. And why a podcast about climate change? So much of the discussion out there is depressing, it's gloomy, it's apocalyptic, and it's sort of defeatist. And I think that it's way overdue that we start bringing warmth and love and joy and optimism into the conversation about climate change. And that's what I hope we're going to do on this podcast. Yeah, I can't, I absolutely couldn't agree more. And for me, it was like, you know, I care so deeply about this issue. um, And I feel like everybody should care about it because it's something that touches all of our lives. Um, But there wasn't a lot of like, you know, information that was accessible out there, especially when I think about my sisters and my friends and, um, you know, people who are brilliant and engaged, but, you know, don't really want to read another scary scientific report on climate change. I was like, how do we talk about this in a more intimate and personal way um, that will bring more people to the conversation? And also will leave people feeling inspired that we can do something about it. I think people can hear the words climate change and they immediately think, well, that's a really depressing topic and it's it's too bad that we're all doomed and I just don't really have time to think about all of that. And, you know, in my work and I know in your work, we work on these issues all the time. There's so much optimism and hope and so many great solutions and so many inspiring people. And I want to introduce some of those people to our listeners. I want them to get to hear from some of the brilliant leaders who are really forging some solutions, not only to climate change, but all of the other issues it's connected to, inequality, poverty. So um, I'm just so excited about bringing that warmth and that optimism into this conversation. Oh, yeah. So we should probably explain who we are and how we got here. So Marianne, can you tell me a little bit about you? Absolutely. I am working now as the director of a very big campaign at the Sierra Club, the Beyond Coal campaign that has had a big impact on reducing climate emissions here in the U.S. But I came to this having grown up in Appalachia in the Smoky Mountains and initially working to try to stop mountaintop removal mining, which is this type of mining where the coal companies blow up entire mountains. And through doing that work, I met people who were affected by air pollution from power plants, water pollution, and ultimately climate change. And so now trying to connect those dots for people is one of the things that I'm hoping we can do here in this podcast, because I think, again, still most people think of these things as pretty remote and removed from their day-to-day lives, and they just aren't. So that's what that's what brought me here. And Anna Jane, what about you? What 
what what is your journey to this moment here in the podcast? Yeah, I feel like there are so many intersections along the way. Um, you know, I also started because of my love for the Appalachian Mountains and uh, learning about Mount Taprimbul coal mining in college. Um, for me, it was, you know, kind of the environmental issue and, the, and really the human justice issue that really, you know, hit home because I grew up on a mountaintop in an actual apple orchard in Western North Carolina in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains. And I would, you know, just like go home for fall break or, and look across the ridge at this mountain, you know, that I stared at every day when I was home and picture it being gone. And it was just such a striking guttural um, emotion for me to 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 think of this place that I love being destroyed in that manner that I knew that I that I had to do something about it and that is what really kind of sparked my my entryway into the environmental movement. It really wasn't climate change. Um, climate change only became an issue for me much later. You know, I'd always I'd learned about it in college. You know, we had to do a carbon model for one of my <laughs> science classes, but it didn't hit me in this in this really emotional way until I started. Um, kind of studying up for this documentary um, that we, where we eventually came to came to meet each other in, in person. Which was so much fun. We got to know each other on uh, this project called The Years of Living Dangerously, which was on Showtime. It was a series about climate change that actually was the best storytelling about climate change I think that anybody has done. Everybody thinks that this is about melting glaciers and polar bears. I think it's a big mistake. This is 100% of people's story. And one of the episodes, it, the, the show later went on to win an Emmy for the best documentary series. It was an incredible show. And one of the episodes featured you. And not only your work with me at the Beyond Coal campaign to try to retire the Asheville coal plant, a campaign we ultimately won, but uh, more centrally was your efforts to persuade your dad, a famous pastor, about uh the reality of climate change. And it was a fascinating journey that I know we're going to be talking about more in the series and in our interview coming up. And it's a struggle that I think also a lot of people can relate to because we all have lots of friends and family who still um, have not seen the light about this issue. So that's how we met. And we just both felt like something was something was missing in the conversation about climate change. And we wanted to try to bring that to the table through this podcast. So that is what we are here to do, to follow our curiosity where it takes us and uh, bring all of you along with us. Yeah, I just, I'm so excited to be on this journey with you. Um, and coming up, we have our very first interview with the one and only Jesse Sweet, who was our producer for the episode Marianne and I co-starred on. So get excited and we'll be back shortly. Hi, my name is Hazel. I live in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. Here is your dinner party climate fact. July 2016 was the world's hottest month ever recorded. It was also the 15th month in a row. Two break a heat record. (laughs) 
So Anna Jane and I became friends working on a climate series called Years of Living Dangerously that was on Showtime. It won an Emmy. It was fantastic. And our episode was focused on Anna Jane and her efforts to persuade her dad about climate change. He is a very prominent evangelical pastor and he is a climate skeptic. Uh, And so the episode followed her story and her work with my campaign, the Beyond Coal campaign, to retire this polluting coal plant in Asheville, North Carolina. It was an incredible story. It was beautifully told, and it was produced by today's guest, Jesse Sweet. So welcome, Jesse. Hello. Thank you. Uh, good to be here. We are very excited to have you to talk about storytelling and climate change. And before we get there, tell us how you ended up working on the year's project, and um, had you ever done anything on climate change before? I had never done anything on climate change. And I'll admit this to you, I'd actually, I'd never even seen Inconvenient Truth before. Your secret is safe with us. (laughs) (laughs) I I was aware the climate was changing and humans were responsible. But um, to be honest, you know, it, it was a subject that to me, I think resisted some of the aspects of storytelling, which we'll get into, which made it seem a little bit like eating your vegetables. And usually I like to go see documentaries and movies where it can be like, okay, you know, you've been working and I'm now going to like get sucked into some other world. And here I felt like I kind of knew the basics of it and was going to be kind of lectured about it. Just saying, that's where I was coming from, which I think might have helped me coming into the series in some ways. But the way I got involved was I had worked on a a different series. I'd done a lot of science stuff, actually. I worked at Nova on a couple Nova Science Nows with Neil deGrasse Tyson and this series called This Emotional Life. Um, and so that was a series and it would kind of, it mixed um, science and human stories in this way that I think had some parallels to use living dangerously. And so that kind of mixed, we had a celebrity component to it. We had science, we followed real people and we looked at interventions. And so it had kind of this like mixing some different genres of documentary together to try to kind of, you know, both inform and look for solutions in a way. And I think because of that, we were in the same page in terms of trying to not just lecture people about information or not just focus on solutions or just not focus on one aspect, but realize you kind of have to combine them. That if you don't understand the problem and if you don't understand the human impact, then then you don't understand the solution. Each one on their own is kind of incomplete. So that's how I got hooked up with Joel and David and the whole year's team. So I think like on the topic of emotions and storytelling, my the episode that we were in was a very emotional story of my family. Mm-hmm. And you got this very sort of intimate, unique look into my life and my relationship with my father and really my family as a whole. And I'm just curious like what that was like for you, like as an outsider and and also like why what was it about our story that was so compelling? Sure. Well, I mean since I kind of come came, I think, more from a background of telling human stories as opposed to telling climate change stories. And so I kind of dove in and I was interested in more like where's the junction between humans and climate change. So it's not just this abstract thing. Our initial idea was like, well, let's find a preacher or a minister who's trying to introduce this topic to his congregation. And then we can follow them. And then there might give us a little bit of tension that would be interesting for the story. And are people going to repel him? Are people going to embrace him? You know, what would that do? And then someone's like, well, there's this young woman who does it, and she's kind of actually trying to convince her father. And we thought, well, that's a hell of a lot better than introducing it to a 
church is introducing it to your home where the father is the preacher. History will say that this is a problem and we could have done something about it. And right now you're in the camp that's not doing anything about it. Well, Do you really want to be in that camp? I want I mean, to be in the camp of the truth. And so that, I think it made it like you, it added another layer to it, which made it more attractive that, you know, you had the family dynamic and the religious dynamic. And I think one more reason people relate to that story so much is because everybody has those dinner table conversations. Everybody has their uncle at Thanksgiving. Everybody has their, uh, you know, their, their cousin who they can't quite understand, you know, why they haven't connected the dots. And you sort of opened the door for people to look in on one of those conversations. And I'd be interested in in your thoughts, Jesse, about um, obviously Anna Jane's dad is still on his journey. He has not yet come around and she's found a different approach. But what did you take away from that, that experience of actually sort of opening the door to one of these conversations that everybody's having at the dinner table? Yeah, well, it was, that's completely, it was a dinner table conversation. I think the fact, you know, I do come, my parents are fairly conservative as well. So I think that kind of did bring me, I'm like, okay, I know these conversations. Like (laughs) everyone's kind of like got their arguments down and they're like looking for little ways to kind of like knock the people off their position a little bit. And the first thing that struck me was, you know, a, a tribute to Anna Jane's father is how open and willing he was to kind of take this on because a lot of people I think would have shied away. And I remember myself and my colleague Rob Eichelman went and met Anna Jane and she was great and she was into it. And then like, okay, now we got to go meet the dad, you know, and it was like going to like the boyfriend the meeting. Yeah, the dad. no, exactly. <laughs> and we pulled up and Anna Jane can tell you, it's kind of an intimidating place to pull up to. It's like this like huge compound and you're driving through fields and there's like parking lots and you feel like you're going to the CIA or, you know, it's like this thing. And, you know, he, he got it, first of all, that we weren't, our, our, our project would have failed if we just went in there to make him look bad because we wanted, we wanted to appeal to people like him and his followers. So, and what we kind of explained to him, which he believed, and I think we stood by, is that, you know, we want to have, and we, we don't want to come in and belittle one side of it, because then that would shut off anyone who kind of is like-minded to your father would be turned off by that completely, if it's like, okay, we're going to do it. So we wanted to give him room to make his side, but we also obviously, you know, we tend to agree more with Anna Jane and probably come down with him, but we, I think the fact that we were going to, you know, not try to belittle him, not try to force him to say anything he didn't want to say. He was open to that, and he was willing to let the debate play out. And, of course, because his daughter wanted to do it, so he wanted to do it, Jane, because he loves his daughter. Um, so it was fascinating that both sides in this kind of ongoing debate were so open. You know, they were both confident they're right, which I think is always <laughs> fascinating. Still true. So, <laughs> both willing to kind of just, like, let it all out there. And a lot of times, again, these conversations are different when the camera's on or off, and he wasn't. To his regard, like he was like just like, okay, let's here's what I believe, and I'm not gonna try to sugarcoat it. I understand the science, and I still haven't been convinced by the science. I'm open to it. I'm not totally unconvinced either, but I see, you know, some things that don't add up and some things that seem to me to be quite exaggerated. And so it was great. I think the thing I saw, the thing that was interesting to me, and again, as someone who's not from the South and not from this evangelical community was how much the worldview and the view on climate change was tied into things that had nothing to do with science and nothing to do with the environment, but had to do with politics. And that there was a sense there's that it's a liberal, you know, that climate change and talking about climate change is seen as a liberal thing. And that your dad, I think was 
dismissive of a lot of things because it's like, well, you know, people who believe that are Al Gore. Yeah. It's also interesting. It really has very little to do with their faith. Right. Like his, his yeah, it's not a religious thing. Yeah. It's more like. It's a political ideology. Yeah, it's like we're part of this block and you're part of that block and we're not going to. Yeah. Really cross over that much. And even like throughout the series, we introduced my dad to, to several like very well regarded climate scientists who were able to answer all of his questions with science. Right. I, I, I just set you up with one of the most renowned climate scientists in the world. You weren't willing to hear the facts. I think I was. And he's still at the end, you know, barely budged essentially, which is really interesting because those, right. those worldviews are so strong. And I mean, watching you kind of like bang your head on the wall trying to convince him, it was interesting to me. Like, if you are willing to hold certain things as fact and dismiss other things, then you can just have these people who will never agree. So if you're willing to say climate scientists have a liberal bias and, and there other scientists in the past have been wrong, which your dad kind of says over, no, and, over. over and over again, yeah. that gives you kind of this cudgel to just wipe out huge, you know, piece of science. But on the other hand, the economic needs of the United States are paramount and will never be touched. And so if you're willing to say the economy can't be ruined and science is flawed, then you're never going to be able to move someone, right? Because they have a a reason to want to hold on to views and a reason to dismiss the scientific fact. Well, so one thing that you mentioned that the the reason he was willing to do this was because of Anna Jane, and uh, you're a parent. Right. So I have, you have three kids? Three right? kids now, yes. And I have a six-year-old. Right. And so I'm thinking about younger people influencing their parents. I'm also think of, thinking of how we as parents, especially of, of, of little kids, are thinking of the world we're leaving behind for our kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, since you, since you did this project and did this filming, are you thinking differently about the world that your kids are growing up in? And are you having some interesting conversations with them about this and things they're learning at school? Definitely. There's two parts to the answer. I know we're not, we don't want to be the gloomy show, but I'll give the gloomy answer first. and then I'll decide. The gloomy answer is I think having kids in some ways soaks up so much of your attention that you get in this mindset of like, oh, I have a million things going on. Do I have time to be a climate warrior on top of it? That so happens I, when you don't have kids too. So, yeah. <laughs> so there is like kind of an entropy of action. Yeah. On the other hand, you do, you do, you become very mindful of these things. And I will say, I think it's like, it's become kind of like a hip thing for kids to talk about now is like the environment, like mm-hmm. in the way they might have talked about other, you know, it's like they learn about it in school and everyone knows about it now. So the good thing, the inspiring thing is that, you know, for five-year-olds, the debate's over, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like at least for five-year-olds in Brooklyn, <laughs> you know, and, you know, Al Gore won. And everyone, it's like there's no question, is the climate changing? Like they people are very engaged. And so it's like I feel like half their field trips they go on are to like, a landfill that's turned into a solar, you know, field or, you know, something like that. So, but it, and it also does make us more engaged in the examples we set for them, you know. So we have joined a CSA because we got kicked out of the Park Slope Food Co-op because we missed too many things. But we are, you know, we were in the co-op and CSA, so we care about our food. We care about, you know, we are, we don't have solar, but we're, we're interested in getting solar. You know, we obviously... Anna Jane was in town and stayed at our place and we all went to the uh, climate change mm-hmm. march and my son came That's with awesome. us. You know, it's like, I think I think climate change is a little abstract for them. So they understand like protecting nature and things like that. So sometimes it's putting in these terms that are... It's maybe a little abstract for all of us. That's yeah. part of the, I'd love to hear 
talk more about that too and, and get your thoughts in Jane, because I think that's one of the things we're trying to work through and overcome in the climate movement is it's a little abstract for everyone. I actually like legitimately struggle with the idea of having children for a lot of reasons, but like a big one is the very real possibility that this will not be a safe place in 50 to 100 years right and i, I do have that like when i really start telling about it like they start getting freaked out yeah and i'll like have to dial it back sometimes i'll be like and then there's erosion and then you know then we the fires shall overtake the earth and like the seas shall rise and they're like what, what? And i'm like no no but not if we yeah so i'm just curious clean like, both, energy for both of you like from that perspective like do you ever go there like mentally and emotionally or is it mostly just like we have to stop that from happening and you don't even well, it's not really an option to get rid of them now. Yeah. So I think it's like, I think once you kind of like, you are down, you, you have some skin in the game, it's just, you know, how are we going to fix it? Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, I think sometimes about all of the ancestors that came before me and how I am carrying all of their hopes inside of me. And now I have this child who hopefully will have kids of her own. And in all that line of people, I'm the last person who has the opportunity to do something about climate change. And so, to me, that is highly motivating. Uh, like failure is not an option, and I'm not engaged in this work, uh, sort of in a, a sentimental, aspirational way. I am in a, this fight to win it because I do feel like my daughter's future is on the line, and I think um, it's it's a very real thing to be wrestling with about about whether to have kids. And I can understand that, and I also feel like it is a, a big it's an act of hope. Mm-hmm. It's an act of um, of faith that we can build a better world. Right. Yeah. Well, it does feel, you know, maybe this will put you at ease about having kids. I mean, it does feel like we have reasons to be hopeful for like the last couple of years for the first time in a while yeah. on this issue. I mean, you guys obviously follow close, more closely than I do, but it's like, you know, when you do see the number of solar jobs and solar energy and what's happening and coal plants being shut down it's like finally there are victories and i think that you know victories beget victories because uh, to get back to the abstract issue i think it's like when it seems like there's no hope like well why am i going to show up to fight right and i think for a long time it seemed like big oil big coal had this whole thing sewn up no one was winning anything i think at least that was a popular story so why would i want to go and be a martyr for a lost cause if it's not gonna make a difference I'll be at the bar, you know, whatever. <laughs> so, but I think once you see like, oh no, you can, you, you know, what if you get some people, you can shut down a coal plant or you can, you know, make your town get clean energy. Like I think that I, to me, in terms of the solution piece of it, the more tangent and finite um, the solutions are and the more within reach, I think the more people are going to go out because back to the point we were talking about, people are busy. And if they say, well, yeah, but if you do this, we can, here's a concrete thing we can do. That's yeah. to me was like the brilliance of Beyond Coal. It was like we're gonna have concrete steps, and if we take these steps, we will shut down this coal plant, and it's gonna have this, you know, it, that's the equivalent of taking three hundred thousand cars off the road or whatever. It would be. And There's, how many have we shut down? Well, there are about close, about over two hundred and thirty uh, shut down, and about that same number still out there. So we still have a lot of work to do. But I think um, you know we've carbon emissions that are at the lowest level in two decades. And five years ago, we were getting half of our electricity from coal. Now it's a third. I mean, yeah, that is a revolution in a very short amount of time. And and it's been driven by grassroots power. And that's what I think is exciting about it. And I think, again, uh, back to the climate stories, when you think about Hollywood 
climate stories. It's like catastrophe and gloom and doom. And the future. The polar ice caps have melted, covering the earth with water. And typhoons and floods and explosions and car crashes. And obviously that, you know, that sells on the big screen. Um, but the stories of solutions and connections and love and success, like to me that... I worry that we're telling stories that are demoralizing people mm -hmm. and we're not telling the stories that are going to motivate people. Mm -hmm. And how do we do that? Well, I mean, I think... Or am I right about that maybe for starters? <laughs> I think you are right about it. And I will say, to me, I think have, having like a linchpin of like a human face, like here's a person who cares, who's being impacted, who whose life and maybe not in the next day is going to be impacted by this, but if you kind of play this out, like where they're going, that they're you know, the the waters are going to be eating them up or that their food prices are going to go up and that's going to happen. You know, it doesn't always have to be a typhoon, right? It's like sometimes there's disasters if we're going to be losing jobs, if we're going to be paying more for food, um, all these things, you know. And then, and then, but I do think, again, without a solution, you're just in this circle of despair where it's like, now we understand why everyone's miserable. <laughs> um, but once you have the solution, I think, again, that gives us... And it does seem like historically... Like, I'm really passionate about creative content. I always have been, but definitely working on years, like, pushed me over the edge, like, the importance of telling, like, emotive, beautiful, hopeful stories that are, that are also real and mm -hmm. raw and not just, like, shiny rainbows and solar panels. Um, but, yeah, like, it does seem like the way that climate has been talked about historically has either been, like, super wonky and sciencey, really political, which I think is problematic. You need some of that because that is a part of, a big part of the solution. Mm -hmm. Um or it's just been like pretty much one of those two things right. <laughs> or or too focused on the solutions where right. like like um where it's like you know do this thing but the why part isn't there it's right. like why do i do no, this solutions thing? in you know, a vacuum like, seems like a power grab yeah, like i like, think a lot of people here are like we're going to come in and take away your coal plant give you solar power but it's like why so you can have more power you know it's yeah. like there's this whole Kind Interesting. Of. Solutions in a vacuum seem like a power grab. I have never thought about it that yeah. way. And divorcing the solutions from the problem, divorcing the how from the why, just uh, it, it, people maybe wonder sort of what you're up to. I will say, I think the other thing, just in telling this story, is I think like conceptualizing it as two types of solutions, solutions that are that are actionable, that a viewer can be like, oh, I can go do that. And then and balancing that with like the bigger solutions which are out of their control. Because I think if all the solutions are out of their control, then it's like, well, what do you want from me? Yeah. You know, there's this psychological research that shows that one of the reasons people get demoralized about climate change is because the solutions are either too way too small or way too big. Right. So it's either change your light bulbs and you change them and you think, well, right. that hasn't done anything. Or it's we need a whole new Congress that will actually act and that and, and so there's nothing in the middle. And for the Beyond Coal campaign, that was one thing that we we have struck upon is that retiring a coal plant, replacing it with clean energy, doing a big clean energy project in your in your community. Uh, it flips that script, and all of a sudden, people are like, "Ooh, I am contributing to something that's actually moving the needle on the scale of the problem." Um, yeah. But I still telling that story has still been hard, right? It's right. still it's pr probably not a story that a lot of people know. Um, right. So we still have work to do. Yeah. And speaking of having work to do, um, what have you done since the years of living dangerously, and is any of it linked into building a better world in some form or fashion? Years was one of the greatest projects I've ever worked on because it did have that real once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to make a change on this topic that needed it. I'd say the other projects I've been working on have been hopefully making an impact more by um, enlightening and shedding, shining a light on things that aren't as well known. 
Um, I was curious, do you have any funny stories from working with Arnold Schwarzenegger? He was the celebrity correspondent on your others. Well, Arnold's amazing. Arnold was a correspondent for the story about wildfires, and we wanted to, you know, make our correspondents be characters, you know, because as part of this, we want to show why they care about this and that they have opinions and not just some bland people. I mean, come on, guys. I mean, it's in all our best interests to find solutions that protect our future. We were talking to his people about what things we could film to show that he's active, you know, that this is his issue. And he was given the um, keynote speech at the European Union had a... Um, a panel on climate change and he was going over there so like oh that's great we'll film him and so we go over there and you know we're gonna meet him you know first time meeting him and like the night before and we're telling him all about it you know how we want to approach this story and filming and he's like super into it you know and it was surprised because he lands and it's like a head of st like people were much more interested to hang out with Arnold than any of the other heads of the EU nations that were there like he like definitely owns the room <laughs> and he was like you know, super into this. And uh, he says, he goes, Jesse, this is not the first revolution I've led. When I led the fitness revolution in the 70s, people said, Arnold, no one's going to want to go to the gym in America. You know, that, that people aren't, aren't going to want to go into that. But we made it hip and cool and sexy. And we have to do the same thing with climate change and make it hip and cool and sexy. We have to include everybody. He said, if you see someone in a jacuzzi don't go up to them and say, hey, you shouldn't be in that jacuzzi. It has a bad um, carbon footprint. Go up to them and say, hey, great jacuzzi. Why don't you put solar panels on it? And so I think he was very much <laughs> <laughs> into what we're talking about, not being gloom and doom, but how can you flip the script? So it is like the conversation is always building towards the, that there are things we can do to make it better. And I think that's something that people think of climate change and they think of of either gloom and doom and catastrophe or someone taking away all my things. Not and a solar-powered jacuzzi. <laughs> not a solar-powered <laughs> jacuzzi. Solar jacuzzi. Be amazing. Uh, and with that, I think we will, uh, we will leave it here. We love you. We love your work. And uh, please let us know where people can find you um, on the internet or find your work. So the most recent series, Black Market, with Michael K. Williams, is currently on Vice On Demand. Uh, the new season of... Death Row Stories is going to air in early 2017, and I'm about to launch a Kickstarter campaign for an independent project about a Hasidic, one of the fastest growing and most orthodox Hasidic communities with 50 miles outside New York City called Curious Joel. And so it'll be called, if you can find it, if you look on Kickstarter, it's City of Joel is the name of the documentary. Um, awesome. I think we're, we're wrapped. Awesome. Is that good? Cool. Yeah. Great. Yay. Awesome. Thank you. Very good. That yeah. was fun. All right, friends, until we meet again, Marianne and I want to thank y'all so much for listening. And a huge thanks to our rock star guest and dear friend, Jesse Sweet, for joining us today. This episode was produced by the talented Zach Mack, who usually remembers to bring his reusable bags to the grocery store. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. It's the most important thing you can do to help support this podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and we'll be posting all episodes and updates and information about upcoming shows and guests on our Twitter page at NPLH podcast. So be sure to follow us there. If you like our show and have any questions, comments, suggestions, or would like to be part of our show by reading a dinner party climate fact for an upcoming episode, tweet at us. Again, we're at NPLH podcast. And remember... There's no place like home.